Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. I am beyond excited to introduce my special guest to you. His name is Doug, and he hosts the YouTube channel Pine Creek. Doug, how are you doing today, sir? Doing very well, thank you. Hey, I really appreciate you taking time uh, out of your day to do this. Uh, I'm sure you got a, a busy schedule like most people, but also because uh, you are a skeptic. I'm a Christian. You're coming on my podcast. I know I came on to yours as well, but we had a, uh, an enjoyable uh, dialogue as far as I'm concerned, and so I'm excited to have you back on. But for those who may not, uh, those in the audience who may not have seen that dialogue and aren't familiar with who you are, I thought it might be helpful to give uh, a brief uh, explanation or uh, description of who you are and uh, what you do. Well, uh, I have a YouTube channel called Pine Creek, of course, but uh, that's just a hobby. I don't do that for a living. Um, <laughs> good thing, because you don't make a lot of money doing uh, YouTube stuff. Sure. Uh, at least I don't. Uh, what else? I I live in Arizona. I actually don't live that far away from inspiring philosophy. Um, yeah, I saw that in one of the, the debates slash dialogues that you had with him. That's kind of funny. I'm married, have two two wonderful kids uh, from Canada originally, um, Manitoba, the province. So yeah, I went from very, very cold to very, very hot when mm -hmm. I transitioned. Uh, what was it? I've lived in the U.S. now for 20-some years. Right. Well, I didn't know that you were uh, originally from Canada, so that's interesting for sure. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, what, what do you do for a living? I work at a, at a bank, but uh, go ahead. Yeah, I rob banks. Um, nice. Well, I'll be sure to <laughs> screenshot a picture of you and hang it up in the bank this week just uh, so everybody can keep an eye out. Uh, no, I value businesses for a living. I'm, okay. um, I'm a financial analyst. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, I studied uh, financial, uh, not analyst, but advisor. I had a class over financial advising in college. I thought that was pretty interesting. Maybe there's a close connection there. I'm not really sure. But uh, I'm excited to have you on. Thanks for introducing yourself. Um, you were once a Christian, um, but now are not, and uh, I've got some questions for you just kind of about um, Christian Doug. So tell us kind of um, how did you come to be a Christian in the first place? Well, I just want to—I'm I'm very compassionate about the Calvinists listening. So for the Calvinists listening, I'll say I was a professing Christian, but of course we all know I really wasn't one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am not a Calvinist, but yeah, continue. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I became a Christian, I would say, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old, born and raised in a, in a Christian home, uh, in church one Sunday, we had a big, fat, bald preacher who saying Jesus could come at any second. And so, um, I think I, I ran into the basement of the church and in the toilet stall, I kneeled down on that dirty stall and I gave my life to Jesus that right then. Is that a true story? True story. True story. So do you think it was um, initially at least kind of like a get-out-of-hell type of thing or kind of afraid of going to hell? Is that how you might describe it? Yeah, initially definitely that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he, it was a very conservative Mennonite-type church. I went to that church until I was 15. I left home when I was 15 years old to go to a private Christian school that was about two, two hours away from my family or my parents, I should say. My sisters already went to that school. And uh, so I was pretty independent at a very young age. Uh, but at f when I left home to go to this private Christian school, I had the choice of going to any church I wanted to. And mm -hmm. so um, I still mostly went to a midnight-type church. But as I got older, I went to um, – I think my next stop was Pentecostal for about two or three years because of um, my now wife. I met her there. And that's where it, the whole Christianity shifted from legalism to having a personal relationship and going from um, more, let's say, that fear of hell to God is is just waiting to have a relationship with you. Sure. And so, and so um, I was in that type of church for two or three years. And then um, my wife and I, we got married and we went to a um, seeker sensitive. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Willow Creek model. Okay. I'm not familiar with Willow Creek, but you do hear the term uh, seeker-sensitive tossed around quite a bit, but uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I went. we went to that church for th three or four or five years, I forget now. And so that whole th idea was um, 
to make the non-church comfortable in church and make it interesting and lively and so forth. So my wife and I, we did music and so forth. And so that was fun, but I, I got burnt out of that because I was, I was talented and I constantly was being used. And so yeah. that was, but what, that what, taught, that taught ahead. me though, that of the idea of um, what really is church. And I started questioning, is church really for the unchurched? Is church really for non-Christians? And I said, no, church is for believers in Jesus Christ to edify one another. And so um, my wife and I kind of um, fell away from that type of denomination. Gotcha. Uh, Well, what denomination did you fall into? From there, I think that was the time when we actually left Canada. This was all happened in Canada. Uh, And then we left to come to the United States. And when we came here, uh, we started looking around for a church that we'd feel comfortable in. We went to a Mennonite church here for a little bit, but it was a completely different type of Mennonite and we didn't like it. It was more liberal and I'm more conservatively leaning. Uh, And then, um, where did we go next? I think it was Calvary Chapel, the same type of church that Mike Winger goes to. Um, started by uh, what's his name, Skip Heidsick and and uh, someone else, yeah. and so we went to we went to that church for about I don't know four years. Yeah, and but that we both didn't feel comfortable in that one because um, it's my wife and I each have three degrees, and so we went to university, and it seemed like that church really didn't. It, they always frowned, not always, but it seemed like they were frowned upon education and, and university and so forth. Sure. And so I, so I really didn't feel comfortable. In fact, I was asked to lead the youth group um, in that church in Calvary Chapel, and they said no to me because they found out that uh, I was an old earther, that I believed in evolution. What if, uh, if you don't mind me interjecting real quick, what are your what is your educational background? You said you have, each have three degrees. That's impressive. Um, I have a bachelor's in chemistry, a master's in analytical chemistry, and um, a master's in finance. Okay, okay. Back to the story. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, then we we went to Calvary Chapel for three or four years, and after that, we didn't really. F- really feel comfortable. I think we went to a Baptist church for a little bit, but that was horrible. <laughs> See, that's um, where I grew up. I grew up in the Baptist, Southern Baptist church, but uh, I don't currently attend one, but uh, that is where I grew up. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry, we, I keep we didn't, we, didn't feel, we didn't feel comfortable there. And <laughs> yeah. so um, we ended up in a Presbyterian church. Okay. Now there's two branches of Presbyterian. There's the more liberal mainline branch, and then there's more the evangelical branch. We went to the evangelical branch. But um, that's where I learned really hardcore Calvinism. I never became a Calvinist, but I most most of my friends were Calvinist. I like being raised Anabaptist as a Mennonite. Um, it just shocked me when I saw Protestants baptizing their infants. Like, what in the world is wrong with you people? <laughs> it's like uh, you know, baptism should be a profession confession of faith. Right. Is and this you, something you, you found in the Presbyterian Church? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, the Presbyterians did this. Yeah. Yeah. Not not all of them, but most of them did. And I was like, that was a eye opener to me. But yeah, I learned a lot about um, theology and so forth. And of course, every church that I went to had their own apologetics type classes and so forth. So and then I think um, we went to that Presbyterian church for about I don't know five years or so. And then the, that was the point in my mid-30s, I started leaving Christianity. In the mid-30s, okay. Uh, yeah. You've had quite a journey. It sounds like you've been to almost every denomination besides uh, Methodists and Catholics, it sounds like. But uh, <laughs> yeah. um, if you consider Catholicism a denomination, I don't know. But uh, it sounds like the majority of them are, and you use the term yourself, conservative. Would you use the term fundamental? Um, that's a term that gets tossed around a lot. I'm not even quite sure what it means anymore. But is that kind of the flavor of Christianity that uh, you had belonged to? Um, well, it was all evangelical, I would say that. Yeah. Uh, so it depends how people define evangelical. If you define evangelical as all fundamental, then yeah. Um but but I tell you, there's a huge difference between Mennonite, Pentecostal, non-denominational, Willow Creek, Calvary yeah. Chapel, Presbyterian. Like I've seen it all. Uh, yeah. In in pro- Protestant, non-mainline evangelical, I've seen I think all of it. Sure. So you said that there were apologetic courses in the um, uh, churches that you had attended. Is that correct? Oh yeah, even in Mennonite. Um, I remember 
giving the Kalam cosmological argument when I was, they didn't call it the Kalam, but I remember giving the cosmological argument when I was in junior high school yeah. to my friends. Yeah. Wow. Um, let's see. So you are in your mid thirties when whenever you begin to leave Christianity, is that correct? Right. Okay. How, if you don't mind me asking, how long ago was that? I'm 48 now. So, okay, so um, I took it, about five years to leave Christianity, and then I called myself a deist for a short time. I don't know if it was even a year. It was probably less than a year. And then I just went to atheist. Um, so, yeah, I guess I've been calling myself an atheist. I call myself both an atheist and agnostic. I don't use the word agnostic in front of atheist as an adjective. I use it as two separate placeholders. Um, so, I, yeah, I guess nine years now, eight years. Yeah. Eight, seven, eight, seven, eight years. Okay. Uh, that's interesting that you said you moved from Christianity to something like deism and, and then into atheism. So um, what was it that, let's say, uh, you know, the first domino that fell, so to speak? I think I said this whenever you were interviewing me. I may have already asked you this question if I asked that whenever you were interviewing me. But what was the first domino that fell for you that was like, you know, hold on, this may not actually be true? I think, you know, it's really hard to look back and figure out exactly what the first domino was, but I think a whole bunch of factors was, number one, really trying to understand why people were not Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, um, laughing at myself, laugh, being able to bring my defensives down and laugh at some of the more sillier parts of Christianity. And um, in number three, not fearing hell not fearing the consequences of not being a Christian. Um, number four, just immersing myself, yeah, in third-party perspectives um, and really understanding uh, Islam and Mormonism. Those are the big ones here in the U.S. And, um, and understanding why, why is it that they believe and then mm -hmm. seeing the similarities in myself and then, of course, there's you like that was the when I was yeah 13 years ago is when YouTube atheism really took off, and of course that was a big impact. I watching guys like Mr. Deity, um, Sam Harris, Hitchens was in his prime back then, and I remember thinking, what a shame these guys are so smart and talented, and yet they're not Christians. But then I found myself agreeing with them once in a while, and that's that's a problem when you're a Christian and you start agreeing with an atheist on one or two things. It's like what else are you going to start agreeing with them on? Yeah. So, well, what, what, um, you know, you may not be able to identify like what the first thing was, but what are some of these specific things that did occur to you? So whenever you say, um, I could see how uh, somebody from Islam or a Mormon, or you found yourself agreeing with an atheist, like what, what did you find yourself agreeing with them on? It doesn't have to be the first thing, but just like, what are some of the things? Yeah, well, what, I think one of the most powerful videos uh, on YouTube I remember watching is from Sam Harris, and it was on how Christians have not lost any sleep from the idea that they might be going to the Muslim version of hell. Yeah. They're not worried about it. Christians are not worried about it at all. Yeah. And, and, yet, and yet, if Islam is true, Christians are going to that version of hell. Uh, at least according to the Sunnis and the, Sh and the Shias, I think. I think there's other versions that, but anyhow. And that, that and it just hit me like a ton of bricks that um, here I am, a Christian, trying to evangelize. i got to first convince people that there's consequences after death. And and they're not worried one bit about the Christian version of hell. Not They're not worried at all. Yeah. And, and, um, and so there isn't this stick and even the version of heaven they don't believe in um so it's that was just an eye-opener that um everybody is going to hell or a version of hell in someone's dogma in someone's religion yeah um even with hindus you know with um reincarnation that's a type of hell sure so so yeah, the, yeah I, I remember that that was yeah. huge no i can see how that would definitely be eye-opening to think about uh from somebody else's perspective and um I guess my 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 question here is I I see how that that would be eye opening and cause you to go, huh? I never thought about it like that. That's interesting. But it do you, you 
and I'm sure you underst understand and agree that that isn't really like, say, an objection to an argument or something like that. Does that make sense? The kind of the distinction I'm seeing there. People do not. <laughs> here's my uh, strong opinion. People do not enter beliefs or leave them because of arguments. Right. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. But um, it's it. it we're, there's entering the, into beliefs and, and exiting beliefs, and then what is true, what is false. Like uh, you yeah, may um, you may you may enter into a true belief for a bad reason or something like that, but we, we're going to know whether or not it's true or false based on the evidence and reason, right? Well, we think we will. Uh, how many times in history have we thought we've known something and we turned out to be wrong? Well, if it turned and, out to be wrong, how did we know that it turned out to be wrong? It's like we we it turned out to be wrong. Because because of the evidence and the reason, right? Right, right. And so, um, so I, that's part of the scientific method of having provisional beliefs, provisional knowledge, until we get new information. Yeah, but, sure. But I think, um, I, I think we do change our minds based on evidence, but sure. I don't think that's the majority of the time. I think, well, I think, I think actually very few people can do it. Um, no, I agree. I, you know, uh, have you read Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind? Uh, no, but I'm I'm familiar with it, and I've read some of it. But yeah, and that's exactly what I'm saying here. Yeah, no, that, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, I yeah. think that's definitely true. It's, it was definitely true for for me. Um, I think it's it would probably be true if I left Christianity. I think it's kind of uh, I don't know. See if you agree with this or not. Do you think it's kind of a combination of both? I think you kind of got to see it from the different perspective, like you're talking about, and see that eh, it would be okay if I was an atheist. You know, it, well, you know, for emotional reasons or whatever, I could be an atheist, yeah. And then you, and then you gotta convince yourself uh, of the rationality and the reasonableness of it. Do you think that's probably the case? Uh, I think it's eighty twenty. I think uh, probably eighty percent of what we do, how we behave, how we live our lives, um, is because of these level one intuitive emotional type factors that we might not even be aware of and then maybe there's 20 percent that we sit down and objectively try to sort through things and and figure out what's true or not based on the evidence yeah i don't know if i could put a percentage on it but i think it's definitely both so i think we're in agreement on that but okay so you're you're able to um see things from a different perspective uh let down the perhaps psychological uh, or emotional uh, attachments with hell. And does that just enable you to kind of look at the arguments that you're already familiar with? Because as you already said, you were familiar with the apologetics. Does that, uh, in your view, enable you to then reassess them with kind of a, yep. a clear, clearer vision or something like that? Yeah, for people, it's either going to be heaven or hell. It's either, and heaven represents love and hope and all that bliss, and hell represents punishment, suffering, and all that. And so once you can let go of your love for Jesus or your fear of hell, then you can look at the evidence objectively, in my opinion, and I think that's what happened to me. And so even when you read the Bible, when you start looking, like if you're a Christian and you're you're coming upon a scripture that really bothers you and it's hard to understand you'll give the bible the benefit of the doubt you'll you will seek out an apologist or a theologian to help you understand it and put it in a good light but if you're objective you're not going to do that you're going to you're going to say oh either this is interpreted this way or this way um, I'm okay with actually making this verse uh, say that God looks like a schmuck because I have nothing invested in this. Um, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. So when you come from that perspective of all your emotions are gone as far as wanting this to be true or hating God or loving God or fearing hell, whatever, then you can see it for what it is. And my theory is that when I was leaving Christianity, I started seeing the Jewish view of the New Testament, the secular view of the New Testament, the Muslim view of the New Testament, the Mormon view of the New Testament. And I got to see all these different biases put into a big cauldron and just stirred about and realizing, oh, depending on what type of religion you are, you see this differently. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, why in the world should I be confident what I think is, here is true? 
because I am just as tainted as the Muslim and so forth. And so basically, I think that's a good way to control for bias, is you get a whole bunch of conflicting biases together in a room. You look at the evidence together, and if there's consensus, then you, you might be onto something. But you don't find consensus in religion. Um, seems like Christians see it one way, Jews see it another, Muslims see another. There's certain things maybe that you'll have, find consensus on, but very few. Well, I mean, I understand that atheism isn't a religion per se, but that would be another perspective on the same thing you were just talking about, right? Like there's the Christian perspective, the Jewish perspective, the Muslim perspective, but there's also the skeptic and atheist perspective, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I said when I said secular. I guess that's what I meant. Oh, okay, yeah, no, that makes sense, yeah. Uh, okay, so you... Um, was there really no... Um, what, what, I just feel like at some point, and I, I mean, I've never deconverted, but I just feel like at some point you've got you you got to reassess the arguments themselves and come to the conclusion that they're false. And I get that, again, seeing the array of different perspectives on the arguments would cause you to step back and think, okay, something's up, perhaps there's a consensus or something. Are you saying you saw a consensus that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And therefore, like, Christianity is false, or I guess I'm still kind of confused, like... That's how... definitely a consensus that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, like... Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, I mean, if we're taking a vote <laughs> on people that exist, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, like, which argument was it that before you thought it was true, and then because of this, now you saw it was false? Am I making any sense? Well, I, you're, I, I can tell you're approaching this like a philosopher, like that you're looking for some type of deductive or inductive argument. That's not how people operate in real life. <laughs> right, but you, you, we both established that, yeah, we make decisions emotionally, and then we start looking for justifications. So this is, but this I is, doubt that that's what you wanted to see. That this is, uh, if you want an argument, this is the, um, I'll call it the what's more likely argument, but it's okay. not a formal argument. It's... What's That's more fine. likely? What's more likely that Jesus, that the authors of the New Testament wrote in a new Moses, a new Elijah, a new Elisha, that in the character of Jesus, or that Jesus actually walked on water, or that mm -hmm. Jesus actually rose from the dead? What's more likely? And when you start asking those types of questions, you realize if you have nothing invested and you don't care about heaven and hell, you'll see very quickly that, oh, Mark was a brilliant author. He took what he saw in the Old Testament and he created a new narrative. And that the Jews, some Jews, a very small sect of Jews, reinterpreted, and even Michael Lacona says this, reinterpreted the Old Testament narratives to come up with a, a dying and rising Messiah. And so when you ask the what's more likely question, the what's more likely argument, I think you'll find it is more likely that this is a story built upon Old Testament narratives. Not to say it's all fiction, not to say sure. it's all made up, but that it's um, it's a great piece of, of work, especially I think Mark is amazing. And, um, and the other Gospels borrowed from Mark, Mark borrowed from Paul, Paul and Mark borrowed from the Old Testament. And that that's, seems like a better explanation that we have this man 2,000 years ago who walked on water, made the lo divide the loaves and fish and, and rose from the dead. Yeah. So I, I guess I, that that it is probably more like what I was thinking, so thank you. Uh, but um, so I guess uh, your explanation generally, and again, it doesn't hold to every specific detail like you said, is that Jesus existed. He did some he may have done some cool stuff, but for the most part, these uh, miracle stories and things like that were. Uh, reinterpretations of Old Testament texts that they use to kind of fit the life of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's how you get from going from Christianity to into deism. Why did you why did you stay in deism, I suppose the question would be, or theism more broadly or something like that? Uh, probably still out of fear that um, that how people would view me as an atheist. So it's just out of shame and fear. Uh, but then I remember being challenged by atheists, like, why even be a deist? And I found myself just constantly using uh, the fill-in-the-blank, uh, the gaps type arguments. 
and uh, which I think everything, almost every argument you have, is, I would characterize as that. Okay. And so, and so, um, and so, I, I basically bit the bullet and said, you know what, I, I'm not saying that there can't be a God out there, um, and you know, they're very male. I'm not omniscient. And so I'm totally open to those ideas, but I just can't defend saying that I truly believe that this is the case. Yeah. So there were some atheist objections to the uh, uh, kind of placeholder arguments that you would use before, and now they were kind of poking holes in them. Or um, if that if that's the case, do you mind sharing like what the holes they were poking that made you go yeah maybe this is it, true it, it actually wasn't even atheist it was just myself at the okay. time just poking holes in like do i really believe that there has to be a mind a personal mind to be the first cause of our universe no no it's like we don't know and it's so arrogant and conceited to think that we know what happened prior to the big bang if even that makes sense uh, before before the expansion of our reality our universe we have no clue what is before that moment. And, um, and sure, it could have been a deity, but on what basis do we say that? That it has to be. Um, so that's, that's basically, I was poking holes in myself. <laughs> okay, so you're just thinking critically, and uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, okay, so let's, uh, this is a good segue then, I guess. Uh, you kind of sound like you're talking about a cosmological argument there or something along those lines. Uh, you you spend a lot of time, and understandably so, this isn't a critique, but you spend a lot of time uh, critiquing Christianity or trying to deconstruct Christianity and show where the tension lies and the thinking and things like that. And uh, like I said, that's under perfectly understandable. Um, and I've enjoyed this conversation because we're kind of getting at Doug the Deist, which I didn't know existed, so that's kind of cool. But uh, He's you, dead now. He's dead now. He does no. He no longer exists. He's, he's dead. To he's me. dead, and he's reborn. He's he's been reborn. Um, he never resurrected. <laughs> uh, okay. So list I uh, uh, specific things. If you can't tell, help me better understand. So I want to take a specific argument, one that you've already mentioned, and I'll just lay it out. I'm not going to defend it. Uh, you know. Um, Whatever, but the Kalam cosmological argument. So everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And since the universe is all of space, time, and matter, this cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. What do you? What did did you find? Because I'm assuming that this is kind of one of those placeholder arguments that you are already familiar with. What did you find unconvincing of that? What do you now find unconvincing of that? Either one's fine, but uh, go ahead. I just did a video on this, uh, and I think it works for almost any philosophical argument for a deity. Isn't it more reasonable that a non-supernatural something can explain the first cause of our universe rather than a new category of something that we call supernatural? Uh, it would depend on what you mean by supernatural and natural. Exactly, right? It's um, right. Well, I'm just telling you as a Christian, I hate those terms as much as anybody else. I'd much rather it, use the word material or physical is, is what it seems like the word natural reduces to, t to me anyway. Maybe it doesn't, but what does the word natural mean? I never used the word natural. I used the word non-supernatural. So Non-supernatural, okay. Yeah, well, then I, I guess I, what does the word supernatural mean? So isn't it more reasonable that a non-supernatural something can explain the cause of our universe rather than a new category of something called supernatural? Yeah. So what's a non-supernatural thing? So a non-supernatural thing, I could just give examples, and that is this cup, sounds that you're hearing right now, sights that you're seeing. I would call that a non-supernatural thing. Right. Things. So things that the universe is made of. Yeah, uh, but... Here's the thing. That's one category of things that could be in a different dimension, different time, different space. There could be something before our Big Bang that where um, was completely different than our laws of nature. Like the Big Bang is the beginning of the expansion of our reality, our universe with its known laws. Mm. It says nothing of what happened before then. Like, you know, people no, say I agree. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Okay. That's why whenever I make a cosmological argument, 
I don't, anyway, make any reference to a Big Bang or Big Bang cosmology. I don't know that the universe began to exist 14 billion years ago. I just think there's solid reason to think that it had to have began to exist at some point in the past. Uh, whether it was 14 billion years ago at the Big Bang or not. You know, you, you do hear William Lane Craig or somebody like that. They do use scientific arguments to try to say that uh, the modern science um, cor uh, corroborates that the universe did begin to exist. Um, he must. He's, our universe, uh, right? I'm sorry? Our reality, our universe began to exist, right? Yeah, all matter, space, and time. But I. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No. Did all, do we know that all matter, space, and time began to exist? That's what the second premise argues for. I know, but do we know that? Well, I think there's solid philosophical arguments that are... Um, do we know that? With absolute certainty? Of course not. Okay. That's, yeah, so we don't know... But I don't think that's what no means. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think no means absolute certainty. Do we know... Like I know you exist, but I like uh, is it possible? Do we know yeah, ninety percent that it that all matter began to exist, and space and time eighty percent sure. How confident are you? I don't have a, I don't have a probability theory on it. Uh, those um, percentages turn out to be quite subjective every time I hear them. Anyway, but it, I mean, I'll lay it out for you. It just goes that um, you. And you're familiar already, but the transversing of an actual infinite number of events is impossible, or somebody like Craig or somebody would lay out philosophical arguments as to why that's impossible. And that just goes for anything that is matter, space, and time, whether it's in our universe or a different universe. I mean, what, what do you think if what, – what would be the difference between the matter and the space and the time – that we experience versus matter, space, and time in a, a different experience. Time could go backwards. It could go forwards. It could jump sequence, but, sequentially. But time going like, backwards from what we experience would just be forward to whoever was experiencing it over there. Maybe not. We don't know. Well, we're I mean, talking about. Well, we know what time is. We have no. We we're talking about things we have no clue on. We we're know just what time guessing. Is. We know what time is. No, no. What you're talking about. I don't even know what you – this is why – to me, this is absolutely useless and senseless to talk about. Because well, I mean, we're, I we're, think it's quite simple. Do you know what caused our universe? I think that a spaceless, timeless, immaterial being caused our universe. Do you know it's immaterial? Um, in order to bring all matter into existence, you would have to be immaterial. You know it has to be? All matter can't – matter can't bring into existence all matter. That's a contradiction. Do you know that something that unknown something that's material, that's not supernatural, could have always existed or not? Do you know I, that that's impossible? That's what I was just talking about, the actual infinite. Do you know that that's impossible? It seems like that's logically impossible, yeah. It seems that way to you, but do well, you know I, I could, I, I'm holding what you said we should hold earlier, that our hold our beliefs tentatively. Could I be wrong Yes, but I haven't heard any good arguments to the contrary. Well, here's one. It's Isn't like it you, more okay, here's ahead. one. Isn't uh -huh. it more reasonable to state that a non-supernatural something has always existed rather than a new category of something called supernatural has always existed? But I'm not postulating something supernatural because I don't know what that means. And you just I need said you, it. I need, I need you to define it. Would you? I think you just defined it when you said immaterial. Did you not? That that's immaterial. I know what matter is, and so I can imagine what non-matter is. But I'm not postulating supernatural. I don't okay, know what that means. Let me let me back up. Perhaps the immaterial is perfectly natural. I just don't know what the word natural means. What does supernatural mean to you? Nothing. What does natural mean to you? Well, I don't use the term, but whenever, like you just gave examples of what you think is natural, it turned out to me to mean material. So whenever I hear people say natural cause, they mean physical cause. What does immaterial mean to you? Non-material. So you believe something non-material created our universe? Yes. Why do you believe that? Because I don't think an actual infinite number of physical events can be actual 
And so that means the universe, which is all of space, time, and matter. Why do you think have, an immaterial can do it and not a material? Because I because matter, something material, could not bring into existence all matter. That would be a contradiction. It would have to already exist in order to bring right, itself into existence. Right, but we're not saying that. We're saying that That's what the Kalam is saying. Absolutely, that's what it's saying. No, uh, see, this is it. To me, this is just a complete waste of time. We're just going to go in circles. But I just think it makes perfect sense. I don't get it. Like, a matter can't bring into existence. Okay, well, well, um, okay, imagine God is matter for a second. Okay. Okay. You're imagining, I'm imagining God as a human being. That's how I'm thinking right now. Okay. And, it, and, but it's still eternal. Okay. Can you see it or no? He would, it would have to somehow be motionless. Why? Because as soon as you enter motion and change, then you introduce time, and time is the problem. Time follows upon matter. And in fact, on, you know, God's some... outside of time? I'm sorry? God's outside of time? God's outside of time? He certainly isn't bound by time? Okay, why can't something material be outside of time but not bound by it? Because time follows upon matter. I mean, in fact, Einsteinian physics or some uh, interpretations of Einstein. No, Einstein, none of that applies when we're talking about before the Big Bang. None of it. Oh, okay. Well, exactly. If none of that applies, then time doesn't apply. Right. So we don't know what time even is before well, the Big matter Bang. matter certainly applies to Einsteinian physics. So you're also talking about something immaterial again. Well, we're, we're talking about matter that might be com have completely different laws. It's, as long as it's matter, I mean, matter's matter. I don't know. Okay. So do you believe God's outside of time? You said yes. no. Yes, you do. I believe you God do? is not bound by time. I don't know how to word it. It sounds like you're... What, what are so you do getting you at? That? I guess just, I guess so just tell believe, me what you're going for. Do you believe God has a thought and that at that thought, he could have a thought before it and after it? No. No? No. No, whenever we speak this way and, you, you know, if the listener wants to read about this, you can read Thomas Aquinas or any Thomistic philosopher. Whenever we speak of God, we're speaking uh, analogically. So God doesn't have thoughts like you and I, but we understand him to have something similar to thoughts. But So is God a personal God then? What do you mean by personal? Well, that he interacts with his creation. Yeah. So in order to interact, doesn't he have to have thoughts? He has to do something analogous to thought, but again, I can't fully grasp that, no. You can't fully grasp it. So it's like, you just say, I don't know, right? I don't know, like, metaphysically what exactly is going on. But he clearly, I mean, we believe that he works in the universe, and so something has to be going on. And so we, if you're willing and to say, I don't on, know... If you're willing to say, I don't know, when it comes to how exactly this God works, whether he has thoughts and all this sort of thing, why can't you say, I don't know what created our universe? Well, I could say that, but I think there's good reasons to believe that a spaceless, timeless, immaterial being created our universe, and I haven't heard any good objections to it. Could a material thing be outside our space? Like a multiverse? Right, that's just one example. Right, well, I mean, the multiverse is not like... That wouldn't be actually multiple universes. That would just be a larger universe. But it would be I mean, outside our space, The word universe, right? it's... I'm sorry? It would be outside our space, right? It would be outside of our space. It would be a larger space. I don't know if it would be outside of our space. I mean, if by outside you mean we wouldn't be able to connect to it or something like that. I have no idea. Would it be outside our time? A multiverse? Would it be outside of our time? I, I don't know anything about multiverse. Could there be a reality that's outside our space, outside our time, and outside our material? Maybe not even have electrons, protons, neutrons? Well, I believe in God, so yeah, obviously I believe that. Okay, but I'm asking, could something material be outside our space, outside our time, outside our matter? It could not be outside our universe in the sense that the universe just is all of space, time, and matter. So no, no, but I'm defining our. I'm defining our universe as our universe as okay, our reality. Okay, it would reality. be outside. Of, it would be outside of our universe in an analogous way that there are solar systems outside of our solar system. Right. So, what if something that has always existed, that's material, not supernatural, created our reality? 
it's outside our time, outside our space, outside our matter, but it created our reality. Yeah, if it's also space, time, and material, then we're just back to the same question. But anyway. Which now, is what created that, right? Yeah, which is uh, how is you cannot, the problems with the infinite number of past events, physical events, but. But how would God, but how is that, how is God uh, immune to this? The how infinite is he immune chain? to it? He's out. He's not bound by matter. He's outside of space. He's outside of time. Such a being. How does that fix it? It's something that is outside of time. That is something that is timeless. By definition, cannot have a cause. Okay, so let's have a timeless piece of material. Okay, postulate. You can that. imagine that. You can imagine that, right? I don't think so, because again, time just does follow upon matter. That is what time is. Time is the mat the measure. Can't you have? Can't you have matter at zero degrees Kelvin? I'm a, uh, I, I took chemistry at zero degree Kelvin. You have no motion, uh, but you still okay. have matter. Okay. I have no idea what zero degrees Kelvin is or any of that, but okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but this is. No, I'm not a chemist. I, I don't know that. I, I understand, but this is why I think philosophical arguments for God are completely useless. Because but I, don't, I, I didn't hear any objections, so I understand that you feel that way. But You didn't me, hear them because you're not listening for them. Um, well, you, why can't I once, say the same thing, Doug? Why can't I say you didn't see the uh, reasonableness in the philosophical argument because you weren't listening? You didn't want to. Because I could have reversed this on an instant and I remember earlier on in this interview you I I told you in junior high school I was using the Kalam cosmological argument yeah but if you could then you should have I did by saying I mean, in junior high school. by by pause, everything you asked I answered <laughs> right yes by saying I don't know which is good and so my point is that um, I think it's it's good noble to be humble and say just like a cat doesn't understand calculus, and it's not even intuitive to a cat to understand calculus, we're talking about things that might even be beyond our ken, our, our even scope of understanding, like the whole idea of even prior to the Big Bang. What does that even mean? We're trying to, and, and for us mere mortals to say, oh, I know that it has to be this. But you certainly but, feel that you know things, correct? Yes, I know that when I take this pen and let go, it's going to fall. Right. But I don't know what caused our universe. Okay, well, some people feel that they do. I don't see the difference between you knowing certain things and other people claiming they do know okay, so certain things. So let me ask things. you this. How confident are you that when I let go of this pen, it's going to fall? Very confident. Are you more or less confident that, that God, a God, created the universe? I'm very confident that... A, a uh, more actual... or less than this pen... I don't, I don't know how I would be able to weigh those two, first of all. I would have to have more precise... I know how you, you know can what weigh I mean? those two. Okay. How? Repeatability. Okay, we can't well, repeat the universe, can we? <laughs> right. So this is a... You're, you're looking at um, we can do the repeatable, observable, scientific method to the pin. It's going to fall. Uh, the statistical probability is that it's going to fall. You know, I'm saying we can't do that with the universe. Right, I agree. You can't helpful. do that. Yeah. But you that's what the point I was actually going to make is that you cannot do that in this instance. Um, just seed what you were talking about with the Big Bang. We can do the repeat the observable scientific method up to a point, and then we it seems that the laws of physics break down, right? So you can't do that there. But I don't see any problem with the philosophical arguments at all. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that you like philosophical arguments, but um, but that's just what they are. I, okay, yeah, but okay, so how confident are you that something cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same way? Oh, in this universe, very confident. But I, I've just listened to, who was it? Uh, some philosopher saying that there's even a branch of philosophy where contradictions are allowed. I can't imagine that, but... Yeah. Um, anyway, let, let's move on to something else that was certainly fun. I appreciate you uh, divulging into that and uh, in, indulging me into that. But uh, so I appreciate that. It's always fun to be able to be cordial in such dialogue. So I appreciate it. But uh, moving on with the actual interview, we actually weren't scheduling a debate on the column. But uh, you, um, as, um. I'm assuming you haven't uh, your your moral values and your moral duties 
haven't changed all that much. You haven't, um, you know, when you deconverted de from Christianity or, or even from deism, your moral values didn't just go out the window. So um, what kind of were your moral values? Were they pretty, um, did your morality, was your morality pretty conservative as well, whenever you were a Christian, say you described yourself as a conservative Christian, so I assume you mean orthodox in your religious beliefs, but would you have described yourself as morally and perhaps even politically conservative? And we don't have to talk about any political beliefs if you don't want to, but um, would you describe yourself as conservative in that way as well when you were a Christian? Conservative? Um, you mean politically? Yeah, probably, um, but not um yeah i would say yes so like i could <laughs> well i can be more specific would would you have had a conservative uh moral view on say like a sexual ethic or something like that oh yes i was a virgin until i got married i was a virgin until age 22 i got made uh i got married at age 22 i um yeah uh so if that's what you're getting at I was just kind of trying to see, like, if you had a, a conservative moral view as well. Whenever you're a Christian, and um, it doesn't, yeah, I was, the, the two uh, don't always follow. So I was just wondering, but uh, I don't uh, swear. I, I, to this day, I don't swear. I, I've faithful husband um, before and after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So would you? Um, I guess you certainly would have got your moral values and duties from. Uh, your belief in God or the Bible or something like that back then, uh, where do you look now? And again, I'm not asserting that anything's changed. I actually assume that basically nothing has changed for you in that regard, like you are just describing. But uh, where do you look to now to say, ought I do X or ought I do Y? Like, uh, how do you make that judgment now? Um, by doing the best I can on what would increase well-being and, and reduce unnecessary suffering. Sure. Um do you believe that I'm just asking kind of some stockholder questions that Christians have of atheists just so people can hear your response, by the way. Um, I don't really have any objections to them. Do you believe that uh, life has any ob objective meaning or objective purpose in, uh, in the sense that we ought to do this or we ought to do that? Uh, usually depends on how you define objective. The way most Christians who would ask that question, they define objective to mean something that transcends humanity. <laughs> Uh, and usually they're thinking about God, even though they might not say it. So when I hear the word objective uttered by a Christian, I'm thinking objective morality actually means God morality. Objective meaning means God meaning. So sure. if you're asking that question, I say no, none. Okay. So, I mean, I guess just kind of how do you form the decision, this is what I am going to do with my life? Is it? How do you think that forms? Uh, as an adult now, probably by making a list of pros and cons and what I— uh, what my goals are, what I want to accomplish, um, which includes my family and so forth. Yeah. It's not that difficult. It's not. No, you know, it's I, not no, that I understand the practicals. <laughs> I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I guess um, the way the way I'm thinking here is um, is there is there a wrong way to do things? I mean, uh, is is it subjective? Is it well, you know, just do what makes you happy, and uh, you know, if you want to do that, then do that. Is it, is it pretty subjective? No, no. No. Um, once, once you have a standard, mm -hmm. anything that goes against that standard, you can say is objectively wrong. And if it goes with the standard, you can say it's objectively right. Is, and so, okay, I guess the question I had, sorry, I'm not doing a good job at asking the question, so it's my fault. But I guess my question was, is the choice of that standard subjective? Subject, yes. Just like you've subjectively chosen to follow Yahweh or Jesus I subjectively have chosen to follow unnecessary suffering and well-being. If another individual does not, can you say that they are wrong? If uh, if they are the standard itself? Okay, so you're saying once I chose the standard of well-being and cause as little suffering as possible, now I can navigate objectively as to right. what actions will get me to that goal. But if right. somebody else subjectively chooses a different goal and say their standard is whatever brings me the most pleasure, are they yeah. wrong to choose that standard? Yeah, based on my standard, I'd say yes. If if they're doing something that goes against my standard. 
Okay. And, and if I do they, something so that goes they, against... Okay, so I guess my question is, if your standard, which is leading you... Okay, so say, and I'm just trying to be as explicit as possible. Wait, I'll make it third party. Say Bob over here, his standard is do whatever brings me the most pleasure. And Steve over here's uh, standard is what you described, which is uh, cause as little harm as possible, increase well-being. And so according to Bob's standard, he wants to get as much pleasure as possible and say that means violating somebody or, or something like that because it's going to give him pleasure. Um, but your standard is to uh, as to not cause as much harm as possible and to increase well-being as much as possible might cause you to intervene and try and stop Bob. Right. I mean, I hope you will. I mean, I would. That would be, you know, like if somebody's going to hurt somebody innocent, I would intervene. I hope I would intervene. I, I think most always, people would. Yeah, I hope that I would intervene. I don't consider myself overly courageous and brave, but I hope that I would. Uh, that would be the right thing to do. But if these standards are just chosen subjectively, it seems the most you could say is that seems wrong to me, but it's not actually wrong. It, according to Bob, it's right because his standard is pleasure. Yeah, uh, I would say that most people would intervene in a situation like that because I think we evolved. Um, Christians call it uh, God's morality on the heart. I call it evolution. <laughs> we have evolved this way to survive. Um, so whether or not it—I I actually think there's some things in my standard that might be considered objective, but okay. not not beyond humanity. It's still within humanities. But I would say that— um, the Christian would just say, well, I have a standard and it's God and that's the real standard. It seems to me that this is the real standard. It seems to me this is the right standard. Um, I think the Christian's in the same boat. That question could be asked of the Christian and because whether or not this God is real and has this objective standard, the real issue is epistemology, not the ontology, because who cares? If there's objective morality, who cares if we can't, if, if, if we can't know what it is. And so the real issue is what do we, how do we behave? How do we know in every circumstance that this is the right thing to do, especially being not omniscient, can't see the future of our consequences and so forth. And so I honestly, I sincerely believe that even if there's a God and even if there's objective morality, it's irrelevant mm. if if we can't figure out what it is. I, I always bring this up. Um, I actually don't employ a moral argument if I'm going to try to argue for the existence of God. And the reason for that is, and I, I always, I, th I think I brought this up to Tom Jump as well, is uh, I always recommend to atheists that they should read Aristotle whenever it comes to ethics and morality because I really think you could get a genuine, objective morality in the sense that even Christians mean it um, from an Aristotelian uh, philosophical view of human nature, and so without this, Jesus, without Jesus, yeah, yeah you could know there, right Aristotle from Aristotle didn't know Jesus, right? He, he, but he knew what was right and wrong, and it, and and Thomas Aquinas picks up the same thing. Um, in case you think it's like completely devoid of how did he know right and wrong? Uh, well, Aristotle and then later Thomas Aquinas are arguing that there really is an objective human nature. There, there, there is something. That is a human nature. and But how did he figure out what's right and what's wrong? Yeah, I'm going to get there. But it starts with the metaphysics. It starts with there really is an objective uh, human nature. And every action we take, there's not a choice. Every action you take, you take with the intent of it perfecting you as a human being. Nobody, do, nobody, nobody does an action because they think it's bad for them or because they think it's evil or something like that. They take it because they view it as good. So the word good pops up over and over in this. But Well-being? Right. That's what, right. I agree. That's what I'm saying. You were close. <laughs> but I think if, if you read Aristotle and later Thomas Aquinas, you'll see that there really is a case to be made that what we mean by moral or, or moral actions is human actions. We don't mean it of anything else. And human beings act with the intent of it perfecting their nature as a human being, and you can really measure that objectively. You may think this action, like the guy who's just seeking pleasure, is going to per, uh, is good for him, but if he actually thought about it and reasoned about it, he would see that you know violating somebody else actually wasn't even um, good for him in the first place, but uh, it certainly wasn't good for the other person. 
But anyway, I I always bring that up because whenever I I studied Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas in in the school in the school that I'm in right now actually, which is an MA in philosophy at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and what I saw in that and Thomists Thomas Aquinas actually for as far as I can tell, don't make the moral argument, and it's for this reason. And it, because it kind of seems like, well, you know, I think you probably could have a morality without necessarily grounding it in God or in God's nature or something like that. I always bring that up because uh, it usually surprises atheists. I don't know if you're surprised by it or not, but um, that there's a whole branch of Christian philosophers who don't do that. Well, yeah, I, I think uh, whenever a Christian or a theist um, uses God as a standard of morality, they open themselves up for a whole bunch of problems. Right. No, I think that, uh, what is it called, the Euthyphro dilemma? I think it succeeds. Uh, and, and saying, saying, um, well, God just, uh, he just is goodness, or he just is a standard of morality. Um, it seems to be a tautology. You're just saying God is God. And so I don't really even know yep. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah I, I no, I agree with that. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, Tom was pleasantly surprised by that, so I thought you might be too. But anyway, I just like to bring that up. Um, Why do you think Christians always bring up morality, though? Like, do you th do you think that they really need that gravitas behind them to say? Well, it, something's it is really, very, very much wrong? gravitas. So when I heard William Lane Craig say this before, and it surprised me um, because he was asked what he thought um, the most effective argument, and the word effective is going to be the operating word there. But if you ask me what the best argument for the existence of God is, I wouldn't say the moral argument. But when he was asked what the most effective argument was, he said the moral argument. And I, I just thought it was uh, interesting that it, the word effective was the operating word there because it does carry that gravitas. Because you, because you can make um, certain arguments that either do succeed or appear to succeed from saying, well, you know, if God doesn't exist and... You know, evolution is true, and that's where we got our morality from. Then, you know, why isn't it wrong when a dog does this, but it is when we do this? Like, uh, certainly you don't want to say that, or if, if we just get our morality. They always, um, it seems to be the consequences of what appears to be an, an atheistic morality that people shy away from. They go, oh, crap. I, You know, when the apologists are making the argument, they say, well, if you deny that God is the grounds of morality, then you must accept this. And this always sounds absurd or even immoral to our intuitions. And so people go, well, I certainly don't want to accept that, you know. I certainly don't want to have to accept something like relativism or something like that. So I think that's why it carries so much gravitas because the the alternative is always presented as something either absurd or obviously immoral. And so they feel like they there's no other choice. I have to accept God now. And so I, I think it works. I think he's probably right. Whenever he goes on college campus and does stuff like that, that probably is the number one argument that actually gets somebody to change their mind. You think that's the case? Well, I think um, more and more people are realizing that that same alternative, negative alternative that some Christians might use, well, if you don't accept God, then X, then you can't really say Hitler was really, really wrong. And right. we really want to say Hitler was really, really wrong. Yeah. So therefore, we got to accept God. Um, that can backfire so quickly because, well, if you're a hyper-Calvinist, Hitler was part of God's plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, of course. Yeah, and you know, it, it seems like, uh, I'm trying to think here, they, 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 because some of the responses I've heard to Craig on well-being, I'm kind of like joining forces with you right here, and it's kind of annoying me, but, uh, <laughs> uh, just kidding, but some of the responses I hear from uh, Craig and other th theological voluntarists, that's what their position is, or, or you may hear uh, uh, divine command theorists, some of their critiques of the well-being, um, uh, similar to what you put it as, but the way that I would describe the well-being argument from reality, uh, the Aristotelian and Thomistic version, some of the responses that they have to it is, well, what if I just don't care about well-being? Then what? But, of course you can put the shoe on the other foot very easily. Well, what if I don't care what God says? So what? Well, yep. you're going to go to hell. Do you want to go to hell? Well, what if I want to go to hell? Now what? You know what I mean? Like, you can play that game all the way out on either side. It doesn't make any difference. Well, but my, That's why yeah. I was saying, sorry, one last thing is, on the Aristotelian and Thomistic view, the answer would actually be, what if I don't care about well-being? The answer is, you do. 
and you can't avoid it. That's the point. You cannot avoid it. Right, right. I and in fact, I even I uh, this is where you probably will disagree with me, but I think even using God Yahweh as the standard of morality is the same as well-being and unnecessary suffering. It's basically why ought one obey God? Because if you don't, you will suffer, and if you do obey, you will be rewarded. Yeah. In this life, but in the after, and so it all boils down to pleasure and pain. And yeah, no, that's the, no surprise because actually, animals. you know, actually, I, <laughs> I would argue that you can actually see this view of morality in God's own words Himself, uh, especially if you go to uh, where God is. Um, the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land. He says, do this, do this, do this, and don't do this, and it will go well for you. And he clearly doesn't just mean like in heaven or in the next life. He means in this life. So I think there's, at least you can make the argument that the purpose of God giving commands is more or less because of his omniscience. He knows what would bring about human well-being, and so he gives the commands and if we trust in him, it will bring about well-being. Now, you could argue that, well, if you actually follow some of these commands, you know, like a skeptic might look at the Bible and say, well, some of these commands are quite awful, you know, or something like that. But the point is, I think that's actually the view that we sh that Christians should take. But Well, um, that's an interesting point uh, you, because I think the Jews were brilliant because they came up with a system of a way to falsify their God as being true or not. Because if you obey your God, then you'll be blessed. And if you don't obey God, you'll be cursed. Right. But the New Testament flips that on its head and say, no, you should expect to be cursed. You should suffer for my sake. And so just because you're sick and poor and all this stuff, that doesn't mean that God's cursing you. Right. In fact, in fact, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so, you know, Christians often say that there's the Bible is a, tells a consistent story from Genesis to, Genesis to Revelation. But I'm this you, you've pointed out a a part that I see as not consistent, not telling a consistent story. And, uh, but anyway. Well, I mean, I think you could, and uh, I don't have the Old Testament theological knowledge to do this, but I think you could definitely build a theodicy from the Old Testament itself, especially with the book of Job and things like that. Like, Job did everything right, but he was clearly, you know, suffered quite a well, bit. Well, that, that was a bet. <laughs> right, a between, bet between God and the devil. Yeah, uh, that, was, that was a special okay, case. Uh, one last question before we uh, get to the bonus segment here. Um, I've heard you say, and maybe I heard you wrong, or you can reiterate it if you want, but I've heard you say that you do not want to live forever. First of all, is that true? Yes, I've said that. Well, I'm kind of curious. Why do you Why do you not want to live forever? I just, uh, if if we're talking about me... The character of me, I know that living forever, I would get bored and go nuts. Um, at some point, I want the party to end. I want to die. And so I, I'm okay with dying. In fact, I'm not okay with living forever. And I, I, this is not unique. You'll find people out there who, even Christians, I think there's some of you are out there who are a little scared about living forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it depends on... You know, do I want things to be, I mean, actually my life is pretty great, but say I was uh, someone who suffered a lot, would I want life to be that way forever? No, of course not. No, I um, actually think it's harder when your life is great to live forever. Why? I think, I think we get meaning and purpose. This is where I, I kind of agree with uh, some of the Christian. Oh yeah, sure. We get meaning and purpose out of suffering. Yeah. And so if, you, if you're living, can you imagine being a billionaire, getting everything you want on this earth, basically making heaven on earth for yourself. You're still nice. You give to the poor and all this sort of thing. But at some point, if it's really you, if if you are a person who can get bored today, unless God takes that part of you away, um, then it's not even you anymore. Um, I, I would just think, for me, I think four or five hundred years is good enough. <laughs> Maybe maybe we'll just uh, you know have all have ADD like me and we'll never be bored. I'm I'm literally never bored. But okay, so it seems to me, and don't shoot the messenger here. Um, I'm really not trying to trap you, but it seems like if you don't, if you do not want to live forever, and Christianity entails living forever, that you you really don't want Christianity to be true, right? That's true. Yeah. If if I became convinced that Christianity was true, um. I would have to reject it 
and say, I reject the truth. Uh, just like Satan, because Satan knows it's true, but still rejects it. And I would say, uh, sorry, God, I'm going to take um, door number two. But if door number two is living forever in hell, then I'm kind of stuck. I would probably want to be a annihilation. Let's say, let's say annihilation. Let's say the annihilation view of hell is true. I just want to lay this scenario. I just find it fascinating. So let's say annihilationism is the alternative to being in God's kingdom eternally, here, heaven on earth. Not just up in heaven, but here on earth. Well, yeah, yeah, that would uh, be good. I'd take that. You would take that. Mm-hmm. Over annihilationism? No, no. Sorry, I would take being annihilated. Oh, okay. So you, okay, you're you just say that so easily. It just kind of cracks me up. Sorry, because it's so counterintuitive. It's perfectly fine if that's what you want. But so if it turns out that God really does exist, Yahweh exists, and He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. Uh, we really are sinful, and we need salvation from that in order to live in God's kingdom forever. And so he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, and then he rose from the dead three days later. And we could, we could prove all this with the kind of certainty that you would like. And yep. if you put your trust in him, you would live forever in God's kingdom. You would not put your trust in Jesus so that well, you could, became, be, an, so that you could became, be annihilated. It would... I don't think you would have a choice at the point if you're convinced it's true. Well, no, you're right. Trust. You use the word trust. Right. Yeah. So if you, you're convinced yeah. mentally that this really happened, now the question is uh, fealty. That's actually what the Greek word in New yeah. Testament means. Like you're going to pledge your allegiance to him. And in that sense, you will then enjoy him. Presumably, you don't think it would be enjoyable, but you would enjoy him for all eternity in the heaven on earth here. Um, yeah, you, you, would, you would say, eh, annihilate me. Thanos just annihilate me, and you know what? I wouldn't even regret that decision because I'd be gone. Because you you wouldn't do anything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't. Know, that's funny. All right. I mean, I'm not laughing like at your view. If that's what you want. That's what you want. I just it it is counterintuitive to what most yeah. people think. But you know, anyway, Tom Tom Jump always has that his uh, main basis of morality as freedom, which I don't agree with. But uh, I I would say that when it comes to eternity, uh. A moral God would give people the freedom not to um, accept his binary choice of heaven and hell. Like, God, I know you set it up this way, but hey, why not just zap me out of existence? Yeah. Interesting. Well, Doug, uh, thanks so much uh, for agreeing to do this. I really do appreciate it. Um, I always think it's beneficial to talk to people in general, but especially with those whom you have uh, any kind of disagreement with, but especially a fundamental kind of disagreement like this. Um, and uh, it's very enjoyable to talk to you. I mean that. Um, you're very cordial. I, I like talking to you. So this has been a lot of fun. And I appreciate you taking time out of your day to do this, sir. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me.